You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 48. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hi there. I hope you're having a great week. Do you ever feel hangry? Yes, that perfect combination of hungry and angry, maybe irritable or headachy. Have you ever been told that you should explore blood sugar regulation? yet you have no idea where to begin. Today's episode is for you. My guest is Maria Noel Groves. With more than 20 years of experience in herbalism, Maria strives to educate and empower her students, clients, and readers with the belief that good health grows in nature. Maria is a journalist by training, who has also been formally educated by country's top herbalist. She has opened her private practice, Wintergreen Botanicals, in 2007, and it has been thriving ever since. She's a registered professional herbalist with the American Herbalist Guild. Maria's award-winning best-selling book, Body in Balance, was published in 2016, and it continues to be listed as the Top Herbal by uh, various sources and core textbook in herbal study programs across the country. I certainly include it as one of the required textbooks in one of the courses that I teach on herbal medicine. Your forthcoming book, Grow Your Own Herbal Remedies, is going to be released soon uh, in March of 2019. Maria speaks and writes nationally about medicinal herbs for various organizations, including the American Herbalist Guild, Maryland University of Integrative Health, Herbal Academy, Mother Earth News Fair, Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and Herb Quarterly. By the end of this episode, you'll get introduced to some of the most useful plans for blood sugar control and regulation. Enjoy. Good morning, Maria. How are you doing? I am good. How about you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I'm really excited. We're meeting today. I was really looking forward to our conversation. So you came to teach my students earlier during this semester, and the topic of our discussion will be a little bit different, but I am just so thrilled that you will be able to share your wisdom. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here, and it is a beautiful day right now. Yes. Yes. So as we begin, as we begin our conversation, I want to ask you a little bit of how it all started for you. How did a journalist become an herbalist? Well, it's possible that maybe first I was an herbalist and then I became a journalist and then I became an herbalist again. And that as I was, when I was just a little kid, you know, you always have your different dreams of different passions and things that you want to pursue. So herbalism was never listed as one of those, but I was always interested in plants. My mother is a nurse and very holistically minded, and she had the Reader's Digest Magic and Medicine of Plants, which was actually a pretty good book for its time. I wouldn't use it as a primary source now. And I just remember thinking it was so cool that plants had these special healing powers. And she also started to keep a garden when I was in college. And I would come back and kind of play around with some of her herbs there. And so 
as I was getting my journalism degree, and actually I should back up even more, I would even come up with like nutrition plans when mm-hmm. I was in early elementary school. I don't know that I actually followed them, but I, I loved looking at plans and coming up with like little plans of this is what you should do. Um, so then fast forward to college, I hadn't really taken herbs or, or integrated it into my life yet, uh, but I was starting to get interested in it. And I had to write all these papers for my journalism degree. And so I started writing about plants and writing about herbal medicine and teas. And then I had a really stressful event. One of my instructors was stalking me and I went to the herb shop. Yeah, it was, these things happen. Um, but uh, so I went to the local herb shop because I had been having panic attacks and insomnia. And I was probably kind of a high wired person anyway. Uh, but that definitely made it worse. And so they gave me valerian and kava, which are pretty common herbs for sleeping and anxiety. And I did a lot of personal work too, but it really helped. And so from then on, I was hooked. And I say that herbalism basically hijacked my life. So Mm. even though I still went and finished my degree, I ended up writing for a natural health magazine. I became an editor there and I covered their herb beat and also ran the research department. So I did a lot of fact checking and learned how to look at studies and got to interview herbalists from around the world, which was just awesome, um, especially around the country, but also a few international folks too. And so as time went on, I found I wasn't totally satisfied being in a cubicle writing, even though I technically had a lot of reach through our readership, I just didn't feel as connected to people. And so I left the magazine to study herbs. I did a bunch of different programs, kind of one right after another. So I studied with Nancy Phillips and did Rosemary Gladstar's beginners course. And then I went and studied with Michael Moore the next year. And he was definitely my biggest influence, just fabulous experience to study with him. And then I did Rosemary Gladstar's advanced program later did flower essences to kind of add a, a mm-hmm. mostly kind of a mostly a more chemical, you know, down to earth kind of herbalist. But I love that flower essences get me to think about the plants in a different way and to give me a tool to work with clients in a different way than teas and tinctures. So um, so that's a little bit of my background of my journey. That's beautiful. Thank you. And so you left the, uh, the magazine and so you decided that you're going to uh, open to start your own practice? Yes, it took a while. Um, It's been a little more than 20 years since I first started really studying and using herbs. And I opened up my practice a couple years after I finished up with Michael's school. I was waiting. I was at that point in time in a relationship and waiting for him to propose to me so that I could so we get married and I had health benefits mm-hmm. and it took him a little longer than I intended him to. But uh, but we did eventually get married and get health benefits. And so I launched my business literally the day after we came back from our honeymoon in 2007, which I would not recommend launching a business and uh, planning a wedding and a honeymoon all at the same time. But it all worked out. And so my practice has been open for a little more than 10 years now as a full time practice. And so it's all education based. I do make some custom blends for clients and in classes we make a lot of remedies, but selling products really isn't my thing. It's more about education. So I see clients and do the holistic health consultations that include herbs as well as some diet and lifestyle. And then I teach a lot of classes. That's one of the biggest things that I do. I have courses that I teach live and online, both um, through my own Wintergreen Botanicals company, as well as through other different places. I'll travel to teach as I did with you. And And then last but not least, I also do still write. So I still freelance for a number of different publications. There's a good chance if you pick up a herbal magazine that you'll find an article by me in there. And I I still contribute to other people's programs as well. So I'm a contributor for the Herbal Academy and 
other odds and ends. Um, and there are many different links on your own website that allow uh, either our audience or uh, your students and your clients to really explore a lot more your writing um, and uh, teaching as well. But I have a, a follow-up question for you. Why Wintergreen Botanicals? How did you come up with the name? That was a name I started to come up with when I was in herb school with Michael and, you know, me and my classmates were all coming up with our, our various, what do we want our business names to be? And I just started to think about that. And I was the only person in herb school. I went to study with Michael Moore in Arizona and nobody else was from the Northeast. There was one person who had lived in New York, but was really from, from Atlanta. And so I was the only Northeast person. And just, I liked the idea of wintergreen because that was the first plant I ever really learned to identify. It grows very commonly in our woods here. And just being a New Hampshire herbalist, that idea of winter and green, I'm also a winter birthday. So there's just a little connection that I have with wintertime and that kind of evergreen concept. So those were all the things that came together for me to use that as my business name Originally, I was going to be Wintergreen Apothecary, even though I never really intended to sell plant products. But I, I, fortunately, one of my herbal colleagues gave me the heads up that a lot of states don't allow you to use the term apothecary mm -hmm. because, as you probably know, as a pharmacist, there are certain terms that are regulated to be only pharmacist terms. So I, I switched it to botanicals just before I launched my business. And I'm glad I did it because... Even though I love the word apothecary, it wasn't really describing what I do. And as it turns out, people don't even really know how to spell botanicals, but they really don't know how to spell apothecary. So, so it worked out well because people would have had an even harder time finding my business online. I'm pretty Googleable now. but And as you mentioned, I do have a website that is loaded with information. So if people are looking for information about me, but also just articles and links and virtual or blocks and videos, there's just a lot of free information online for people to start out with. Yes, you you definitely have a really wonderful website that is full of resources. And so I'm going to ask you to tell us the name of your uh, website at the end of this conversation, just so we um, we can make sure that our listeners are able to find it. Um, so you mentioned that your practice is educational in nature. What exactly does it mean? So what is an average client or average patient um, when they come to see you? What does it look like? When they come to see me as a client, often I have them fill out a pretty in-depth intake form that can be anywhere from six to eight pages. They may or may not do a food diary ahead of time. And then they come in and we spend about one hour to one hour and a half, sometimes two hours together talking, or we'll do it via phone, but often they come to my office and we'll just really get to the root of it. I like to have them tell their story about how they got to where they are in their health and why they're asking for help and what their symptoms are and what makes things better and what makes things worse and, you know, see if we can figure out what the root of the problem either is and what some of the core concerns are, because often people come in with many different health concerns and we really want to narrow it down so that we just focus on one or two that are going to have the most impact initially. And then we can always address other things later on as necessary. And so they'll usually leave my office with a custom blended tincture or tea or both um, or some other remedy, but those are kind of the biggies. Occasionally a recommendation for for a dietary supplement, you know, maybe just something basic like fish oil or multivitamin or B-complex. And then we'll check in in about a month or so. And so we just keep tabs. And then as time goes on, as they're feeling better, we start to spread apart those check-in appointments. 
but it's been really rewarding to watch people. And just to back up real quick, I should have mentioned earlier that along with my writing, I also have a book that is now considered to be kind of a best-selling book, Body Into Balance, and that goes into each body system. And then my second book is coming out in February, March of 2019, and that's going to be on growing your own remedies. And that's called Grow Your Own Herbal Remedies. That's awesome. And this is actually a whole topic that I want to uh, you to talk a little bit more about. So it, it's a perfect segue, I guess. Um, so um, you wrote uh, these two books. And so the, the first one, uh, Body Into Balance, I remember um, thinking of buying it, but then everybody else around me started talking about that if you want to purchase a single book or if you want to purchase, you know, uh, a book that is a great reference, that is a great starting point, everyone was pointing to your book. And I think that it's a, it's a huge compliment that all these herbalists that are talking about a book to purchase really, um, select and choose uh, your, your, your book. So can you talk to us a little bit about like how you wrote it in terms of how you uh, decided on the structure? Yes, I am so glad to hear that that you feel that way. And I've gotten that kind of feedback from other people, which has just been really exciting. And that's what I hoped for for the book. So I'm glad that it's really um, succeeding in that way. And it's funny because Story Publishing didn't want to do this book when I first pitched it to them because they were nervous that it would be too much of a textbook. And it's really, it's organized like a textbook in a way, but it doesn't feel like a textbook when you're writing it because it's just so beautifully laid out. And then I use very casual, easy to understand language as we're working through it. So um, it's very well organized organized as an herbal. And I am a, a very organized, slightly OCD Capricorn mm-hmm. kind of person. And uh, and so we start off and it, it's organized a lot like many of our herb classes are organized. When you go to herb school, you tend to learn the body systems and you learn herbs via the body systems. But very few herb books are set up there that way. They're often just kind of an A through Z. The few herbals, at least when I first started uh, setting out to write this book, the very few herbals that did go by body system were more Ayurveda or TCM, which is great, but sometimes not quite as accessible to somebody who's new or or kind of wanting to come to it from a Western herbal perspective. Mm -hmm. So each chapter is a body system. We start off, well, we start off with nutrition and then we go into the nervous system, which is one of my favorite um, nervous and endocrine stress and energy and digestion, detoxification. And then we go into some of the other um, body systems like the immune system, respiratory and so forth. And in each chapter, we talk about how the body is supposed to work, kind of a very casual, easy to understand anatomy and physiology lesson, and then how things get out of balance, what some of our triggers may be for that particular body system and the common health concerns, and then how to use herbs, diet and lifestyle to bring it back into balance. So it's mostly an herbal, but as you probably know, but if you have somebody who's really new, they may not realize that herbalists very rarely use herbs alone. We usually are looking at the whole picture and using a variety of natural remedies, including especially diet and, you know, lifestyle. It might be something very simple, like let's do this deep breathing exercise once or twice a day, or um, maybe we can get you out walking on a regular basis. So herbs work much better in tandem with those holistic supports. Yes, you're absolutely right. And so one of the area that uh, when we were preparing for this interview that I asked you to talk about today is blood sugar control. And I want you to talk a little bit of why it is important for someone to control their blood sugar. And then we'll probably move on or move into the actual herbs and the actual things that someone can do to control their blood sugar. Yes, I, it's one of those things that's reaching epidemic portions. And 
if you have a, a younger, healthier audience, they might not be thinking about blood sugar, but there's a good chance that it is going to affect them either on a subtle level or, you know, somebody that they love. But there's a good chance that that person, um, even if they don't think that they're going to have diabetes or blood sugar issues, may end up with it just because it is becoming so common and our lifestyle and diet as Americans really sets us up for it. So, you know, just some basic statistics, about two-fifths of people are going to end up with diabetes, either type 1 or type 2, most of that being type 2. And um, and then we also have about one-third of Americans being going to have prediabetes. And that's a really great area for us as herbalists to work at. But even though we can be beneficial in later stage conditions as well, just because it's easier to kind of start to, to tinker with things and get them back into balance when you're in those early stages. And so some of the signs that people might not realize that could be signs that their blood sugar is not quite perfect would be that if after you eat, you get really tired or you get really crabby um, or you're starting to notice more abdominal weight gain or there's more inflammation. And oftentimes those things start out kind of subtle. And then as time goes on, as you age more and as those lifestyle habits build up, but also as our body just is not as able to cope with things as we get older, they get worse and worse. So they might think they're healthy when they're younger. And we do have plenty of people getting type 2 diabetes at a young age, but usually it's more so as we get older. And women have a little bit of protection from that with our estrogen, but as we start to approach perimenopause and menopause, we become much more apt to develop insulin resistance, prediabetes, and type 2 diabetes. And so you'll hear women say like, wow, like ever since I hit menopause, my body just doesn't quite feel the same. I, you know, my I I might weigh the same or I weigh a little bit more, but my pants don't fit and, you know, my waist is getting bigger and things just aren't quite, you know, the weight, the weight is going to go more to your waist as opposed to your hips or your breasts um, as we get older. And so men and women are both very likely to get diabetes and prediabetes. And it affects so many things that it ends up being one of those root causes that I oftentimes will look at for people, if, especially if I'm seeing that they have high cholesterol and blood sugar wobbles and, you know, they, they feel like they're getting hypoglycemic really easily because that could be the, the, the backswing of um, if you eat too much sugar and you get that high and then afterwards you get that crash and people start to feel really sluggish in the later part of the day um, and so on. So it's really is a very common factor in mental health in energy, in brain fog, in cognition, in heart disease, in um, Alzheimer's and dementia, in cancer. It just really does touch on so many different things. It truly does. And so one of the things that you typically hear, even the conventional healthcare practitioner uh, talk in terms of the blood sugar control is your diet and how you eat. And so I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on this. So before we actually move uh, into herbs. So what are your typical recommendation to someone that wants to balance their blood sugar to someone who wants to have, a, you know, some some degree of control? Where do you begin? So some of the easiest things to start with, uh, and there are dueling ideas around diet and diabetes, but I'd say one of the easiest things to do is to work on increasing your fiber uh, and your protein intake. So especially at every meal or snack, making sure you have at least a little bit of protein, and that can come from beans or legumes or nuts, so plant-based sources, and really to be honest, the evidence is more supportive for those plant-based proteins, even though they're not as concentrated in protein as the animal-based ones. Um, but some of the great animal-based proteins would be, you know, not factory farmed, but grass-fed, pasture-raised, organic meats and uh, eggs 
possibly dairy, but less so for dairy. And just making sure that every time you have a little bit of food, that there is at least some protein in it. And that helps stabilize your blood sugar, helps you feel more satisfied from your food. If you're just eating a lot of carbohydrates, it's more apt to make your blood sugar more unstable over time. But you also just don't feel as satisfied. So you're usually going to eat more when you're eating a lot of carbohydrates without that protein to balance it. And then with that, fiber is really helpful too, which is probably one of the many reasons why plant proteins can be really helpful is because most of our plant proteins also have a lot of fiber, like the legumes, the beans, the nuts, the seeds um, are all really great fiber sources too. And so fiber helps fill us up, but it also helps slow down that glycemic response in the body. And then it kind of time releases our food in a way. And then also there may be other benefits there in terms of plant foods and high fiber foods helping to feed your good beneficial gut bacteria. There's more research showing that your your gut bacteria can play a major role in whether you are having blood sugar issues or not. And if you're eating an unhealthy diet, that that can sway your gut bacteria to encourage obesity and insulin resistance and diabetes. And then, um, and then interestingly make you crave, it's like those bad critters make you crave more of the food that's Mm -hmm. making you even less healthy. And then on the flip side, as you start to get more of the good guys in your gut, your blood sugar, they will actually have some indirect effects on your blood sugar and your insulin support as well and make you crave more healthy food. So it can be challenging to get started with a healthy diet and lifestyle, but often it gets easier as you go because due to a variety of factors, your body starts to crave more healthy foods as time goes on, even though at first you might just be thinking of, I just really want Doritos and burgers and French fries. But then later you're like, hmm, a salad with some, you know, chicken and avocado or beans on it sounds really good. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. So let's talk a little bit about herbs. So you mentioned that when you see a client, your clients typically go home with uh, a uh, blend of uh, an herbal tea and maybe a tincture or something similar to that. So let's talk about like for someone who is dealing with blood sugar regulation uh, issues, what would some of the ingredients of these teas or tinctures might be? Well, one of the first things I might turn to for somebody with blood sugar wobbles, especially somebody who really is craving a lot of unhealthy food and having a really hard time shifting their diets, because that's something, you know, we want to eat food that tastes good, that we're craving, and sometimes the food that tastes good that we're craving isn't good for us, and it can be hard to shift that behavior, and you know, you could be taking all sorts of great herbs and they might help, but they're going to do a lot better job if you're changing your diet at the same time. Mm-hmm. So my sneaky way of doing that is to use digestive bitters. And you've probably heard of bitters improving your digestion, improving your digestive juices. Um, I'm sure you've had folks on here at this point in time to talk about bitters. But one of, so I'll kind of focus on one of the other aspects of bitters is that in improving your digestion, they also tend to lower blood sugar Mm -hmm. and help regulate your appetite hormones. So they have some direct effects on your hormones around what makes you hungry and what makes you satisfied. And so I remember back when I was studying with Michael Moore, he said, if you're craving something sweet, take bitters and you won't want to crave something, you won't want something sweet anymore. And I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. Like if I want a candy, I'm not going to want to take a bitter. That's just not going to be as satisfying. But he, as you know, as tended to be, he was, he was right. It really does help kind of curb those sugar cravings in particular. And over time, as you're using bitters, and usually I'll have people take them with their meals, so they're getting some improvement in digestion too. But as they're eating, their blood sugar is not going to be quite as wobbly. And so they have fewer of those highs and lows and their appetite 
hormones, the ghrelin and the leptin get regulated a little bit. And so over time, they might find that in the moment they don't crave as much, you know, they might not need dessert afterwards, but long term that they start to crave it less and less. So I have a couple good stories about sure. this. You know, in my own life, I definitely notice this. You know, even if I do have something sweet, say my husband and I go out for dinner, and then after dinner we decide to splurge and get dessert, I feel so much better because I definitely do notice if my you know my blood sugar is not totally perfect, especially as I'm hitting perimenopause. If I have something sweet without a cup of black coffee, then I feel more of that brain fuzz and that exhaustion from that sugar. But if I have a cup of black coffee, which is a digestive bitter alongside it, and it's usually decaf, so it's not really the caffeine that's doing this, I feel better. I feel like my digestion is better. I don't feel like the sugar is affecting my brain so negatively. And I usually don't feel like I want to eat as much of that sugar either. I will probably have less of the dessert because usually I'm sharing it with my husband and maybe also with whomever else is at the dinner table with us. Um, some other examples would be when I used to work at a natural food store, we had a really awesome bakery and we would, I worked in the marketing department. And so the, they would bring down the cupcake of the day every day to take picture of it, to put it on the website. So I'm looking at cupcakes first thing in the morning. And then the cupcake would hang out in our office for the rest of the day. And so inevitably we would eat cupcakes and cookies every single day. And that became a habit that after my meal, it's not something I would do at home, but when I was working at the store, I would want a cookie or a cupcake or something of that nature at the end of my meal, which is really horrible for you because they have more calories in them than your, your lunch mm -hmm. did not to mention all of the sugar. And so I started having a grapefruit. It was grapefruit season. It was wintertime. So I started having a grapefruit for dessert after my lunch. Mm -hmm. And I found that if I did that, I didn't necessarily want the cupcake. I didn't have that craving for it, even though, you know, you would think a grapefruit in place of a cupcake is a really poor substitution. Um, it wasn't that I wasn't going to allow myself to have it, but I didn't even really want it. Uh, and there are other herbs that tend to work well that way too, even though it's not a bitter holy basil is a really nice herb to help with digestion, stress, cortisol, and then also help with cravings later on. So I'll often give clients bitters and with stress formulas or whatever is going on. Sometimes stress is also an inducer of cravings because when we're under stress, our body thinks, oh, we need sugar, we need fuel and floods the bloodstream with sugar. And so even if you're eating healthy, your blood sugar can get out of whack just from being stressed. So I'll have them take that with their meals. And then as time goes on, they just start eating healthier. And so I've had clients say, yeah, I always loved my ice cream every night and now mm. I don't. I don't really want it anymore. And they, they sometimes seem a little sad about that. But, you know, really, that was what they came in asking for help with. And so they're they're kind of glad that they don't need to eat that ice cream every every dinner after that. It, it's a lot of fun to listen uh, to these stories because, A, I have a, a co-workers, actually two of them, that absolutely love ice cream and nothing that you can offer as a substitute typically works. And so now you're, you're planting a seed of recommending maybe some digestive bitters to them. So that's number one. And then number two, you also were talking about Michael Moore and, you know, the whole substitution of bitters um, or uh, instead of candy. And so usually in my classroom, when I talk to my students and I ask uh, of them how many of them have sweet tooth, and so lots of hands go up. It's just like, it seems that in this culture, a lot of people just crave the sugar all the time. And the more you eat it, the more you want it. And when you're talking about bitters, 
people are making all sorts of faces. But what, what I have noticed is that in my classroom, I usually give students to try things. And earlier on in the semester, fewer people do. And they make more faces. And then later on, they get used to these different flavors and different tastes. And so for someone who might not be used to the idea of taking bitters and thinking that it's just going to be this horrible thing, you get used to it. And you actually maybe not enjoy it, but you uh, you feel the benefit of taking it. So so thank you for that reminder. Yeah. You start to crave it after a while. And, uh, you know, maybe don't think of it as a substitute because if you say, instead of having ice cream, have this digestive bitter or have a grapefruit, you're like, yuck, I don't think so. But say, well, have this first. And then if you really want dessert afterwards, go ahead and have a little bit of dessert. And they may find that after a while, they don't really want the dessert quite as much. So if you try to say, instead of great, you know, instead of ice cream, have a grapefruit, you know, your, your colleagues might not be very happy about that. Okay. All right. Thank you. So what are some of the other things that you think about when you're looking at blood sugar regulation issues? Well, there are definitely several herbs that can be really helpful. Some of them don't grow in my backyard and some of them do. Um, one that I want to mention that is not one that appeared in the book just because, um, the research on it was a little bit different at the time. So this is fenugreek. And fenugreek has a very long history of use for diabetes control in um, other cultures. You know, of course, in Ayurveda, India, where it tends to be most commonly used, it's a very typical ingredient in curries, especially sweet curries. And if anybody's not familiar with it, it has a little bit of a mapley flavor. And I have, now that I kind of am familiar with fenugreek, I'll taste it in some of our maple flavored products. Like I get an organic, um, or at least all natural chicken sausage product and it's mm -hmm. maple flavored. And when I taste it, I'm like, there may not be much maple syrup in here. I think it's mostly fenugreek that mm -hmm. they're getting that flavor. And some of the maple syrups that are quote unquote maple, but aren't really um, are flavored with fenugreek too. So it does have this kind of maple flavor to it, but it's also a little bit bitter. And there are many different compounds in it that are beneficial. Some of the first ones that were studied were the fiber compounds. It's about 50% this mucilage fiber. And as I mentioned before, fiber does help slow down blood sugar and can be beneficial. And so some of the first studies, they were using um, two 25-gram doses daily, and they would bake it into bread and have people eat the bread. And that's a lot of fenugreek. And mm -hmm. so most people aren't going to take it in that way. That's like a whole ounce um, twice a day. And if you were going to take that in capsules, that would be like 100 capsules a day. Wow. And so that was the reason why, even though the research on it and the results were very good, I didn't include it in the book initially because... I just thought nobody in America is going to want to eat that much fenugreek. We're just not accustomed to the flavor um, and that little kind of bitter, weird aftertaste that it has. But since then, there have been several studies that have come out that have used lesser amounts and have used um, hydroethanolic extracts. Would be basically, basically, that's a tincture or extracts that are in a capsule form that are just, you know, where they just have to take maybe one to four capsules a day and have been getting very similar results. Mm -hmm. So that has kind of put it back on my radar. And the research has all been good on it. And it's been used in India, but also in, in Greek and Roman times as well since antiquity for blood sugar control. And, um, and there are many different compounds. It's not just one that seem to be beneficial. One of the compounds, let me see if I can pull up the name here. It's like trigonelline was as effective as Genuvia in one of the diabetes drug studies that they did, which was wow. really neat. 
And one of the other cool things about fenugreek is that it seems to have a very modulating effect. So modulating is a term that we use in herbalism for things that can make things higher or lower um, or, you know, not have an effect depending upon what's needed. Mm -hmm. And so fenugreek doesn't seem to only lower blood sugar. It seems to have a modulating effect. So in type, one of the examples would be insulin. So it does seem to affect insulin in type to diabetes, it seems to improve the uptake of insulin in the cells, which would be what would be needed. But in type 1 diabetes, it seems to have some effects where people don't need as much insulin to get the effect. And so it has almost like different effects depending on what's needed. In another study, they used healthy subjects and um, subjects with type 2 diabetes and found that it brought everybody's blood sugar into a healthy normal range. So it didn't bring the healthy folks into a low range. Mm -hmm. It only lowered the people who needed their blood sugar to be lowered. So I just thought that was really neat. Um, and I've started to use it more. I usually am using it as a tincture just because it makes it easy for me to blend in with other herbs. And it has some anti-inflammatory pro properties. It is also phytoestrogenic. So sometimes I'll use it for women who are perimenopausal. And there's been some research there around menopause symptoms and menopausal weight gain. But it seems to be helpful for a wide range of people. That's great. So that, that would be one. Yeah. I, I will say that, you know, as the, if you're eating the whole ground seeds and getting that fiber, it does make some people kind of gassy because okay. if you just suddenly take a lot of fiber, that can be hard for some people's digestive systems. Their gut bacteria needs to adjust to that. And then, um, and then also there have been some, not many, but maybe one or two cases of allergic reaction. Mm -hmm. And it is a seed in the legume family. So there does seem to be a little bit of a correlation where those people also had peanut allergies or, um, chickpea allergies. And so not very common, but it is a possibility. So if you do have a peanut allergy or especially a chickpea allergy, I would approach um, fenugreek seeds cautiously. There's been a little bit of lab research. It does a lot of different effects on the endocrine system on hormones in general, but um, there is a little bit of lab research on rats and mice showing that it increases your uh, inactive thyroid hormone, but decreases the active thyroid hormone. Yeah, and that's just in animals. So it, I don't know yet whether or not that would be of concern for people mm -hmm. with thyroid disease. Um, usually in animal studies, they're using really, really large quantities. And so it doesn't always translate to human beings, but that's just something to be aware of. Okay, that's great. So another um, ingredient or another herbal that um, I know that uh, you mentioned uh, before, and that is very commonly uh, associated with treatment of blood sugar uh, issues is cinnamon. So can you talk to us a little bit about cinnamon? Yes. So in contrast to fenugreek, cinnamon is more specific for who it's going to be beneficial for. So mm -hmm. uh, because of the way that it acts, it's really not appropriate in type 1 diabetes, whereas fenugreek can be beneficial in both type 1 or type 2. You want to be very careful in any kind of um, diabetic situation when you start adding herbs and making lots of changes because you may need to adjust medications accordingly. So people, it's really important that people learn to listen to their body. And oftentimes people with blood sugar issues aren't very good at listening to their body. So it's really about training, like, how do I feel? Am I feeling, you know, high blood sugar or low blood sugar? Am I satisfied by this or not satisfied by this? So there's a little bit of training involved there. So that's just kind of a comment. Yes. Right. And there is a qu just a quick reminder to, for our listeners, the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Oh, yes. Um, so type 1 diabetes, the beta cells that are in the pancreas that produce the insulin ha have been destroyed. And mm -hmm. so they just don't function. And usually that's caused by an autoimmune 
disease. And so type 1 diabetes is usually seen as autoimmune. And then at, from that point on, that person really must take insulin. They uh, Insulin is required to get sugar into the cells of the body. And so if you don't have it, you end up with really high blood sugar, no sugar in the cells where it really does its work. Um, and people can die very quickly from that condition. And so usually the treatment uh, would be, or always the treatment would be to use insulin typically injected right. into the body. And so no herb is going to get rid of somebody with type 1 diabetes need to take insulin, but it may make their blood sugar more stable or reduce their need for insulin. But you do have to be very, very careful, work with your doctor, adjust medications as needed, listen to the body to make sure that you don't go hypoglycemic, mm -hmm. um, which would be very dangerous or hyper, but in this case, hypo is, is the greater risk here. And, um, and then with type 2 diabetes, what happens over time is that the cells usually start off by becoming insulin resistant. And I like to think of it as that, you know, obnoxious neighborhood kid who's just always knocking on the door saying, let me in, let me in, I'm going to do it. And then you don't really like them that much. And so, um, so it's like that with sugar. People are eating a lot of sugar and not really using it that much. After a while, the cells start to say, you know what? bratty little insulin kid, I don't want to see you today. And they shut off those receptor sites. And so initially the body kind of freaks out and produces more insulin to bang down the doors and get that sugar into the cell. And that's where you end up with the hypoglycemia after the fact, um, mm -hmm. where you, all that sugar floods in, but now you actually brought in more sugar than needed. And so now the blood sugar is low. As time goes on, you may end up with some beta cell destruction and you may end up with the insulin production being low rather than high, but at least in those initial stages. Type 2 diabetes is usually relatively reversible, especially with diet and lifestyle, exercise, you know, eating well are major, major ways to control it. You know, of course, there are a lot of medications. And then we do have quite a few herbs up our sleeve as well. But they are pretty different. And it's good to keep in mind that there is no, you know, cure for type 1 diabetes once it's occurred. Mm -hmm. But even though as herbalists, we're not allowed to quote unquote cure things, it is possible to reverse type 2 diabetes in many people, not necessarily all, but many of them. Um, there have been some studies where they've changed diet and they had 70 to 80 percent of people having a reversal of their condition. So and that's just with diet, not with herbs at all. Sure. So um, so cinnamon works by improving the cellular uptake of insulin. And so that's why it is so helpful in type 2 diabetes and especially prediabetes, which is also called insulin resistance or syndrome X, um, metabolic syndrome. Those are all the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all prediabetes, basically. And, um, and so it's really good for those conditions. But in someone with type 1 diabetes, the issue is not that their cells are resistant to the insulin, it's that their body isn't producing insulin. So if you were to take it in that case, it would flood that insulin in too quickly, and that could be very dangerous. So in therapeutic doses, cinnamon is not appropriate in type 1. But type 2 and prediabetes, um, most of the research is supportive that it can be pretty helpful. Um, it's not quite as profound as fenugreek, and it's not working in quite as many different ways, but it does seem to reduce, uh, improve that cellular uptake of glu uh, glucose reduce fasting um, glucose levels, reduce cholesterol, which makes sense because if we have a lot of sugar floating around in the body, we package it up as triglycerides and ultimately also that impacts our cholesterol levels, um, but also reduces hemoglobin A1C, which mm -hmm. is sort of a measure of how your blood sugar is over time. And so it's a good, at, you know, when you look at that hemoglobin A1C level, it sort of tells you, all right, your blood sugar has been out of whack quite a bit over the last 
two, three months or so. And so it does seem to lower that as well. It's also anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. It tastes good. Um, It tastes sweet. It's interesting that a lot of our herbal remedies for for diabetes either taste sweet, taste bitter, Mm -hmm. or they affect our taste receptors for sugar. And so I just think that's kind of interesting um, with those blood sugar herbs. And so um, cinnamon is something that you probably can add to blends or tinctures, but you can so easily add it just to most of your foods. Like I can think of oatmeal and applesauce and so many other things that you can eat in the morning and easily add some cinnamon into Yes, definitely. And often if I really want someone to be getting a therapeutic amount of cinnamon, I will suggest that they just get the powder and add it to their food. And sometimes I'll make these like powder power sprinkles where it's cinnamon with maybe some ginger, turmeric, you know, whatever else might be appropriate for them that still tastes good. Mm -hmm. And just say, you know, throw a half a teaspoon on your food throughout the day. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you do have to be careful with the cinnamon powder is usually what people want it in is something like oatmeal. And then they'll want to add a bunch of sugar to their oatmeal. And so that you know, while they can use it that way, they're, they're now getting a high sugar breakfast at the same time. So just want to keep that, um, in, you know, in moderation. So the tinctures are okay. I love making teas with cinnamon. It makes Mm -hmm. a really yummy tea. And that would be something that you'd want to have with food. All these remedies are things you want to be taking with your meal. If you take them on an empty stomach, they could make you pretty hypoglycemic because they're supposed to be helping your body deal with blood sugar. But if you're in between meals, your blood sugar is already pretty low. So, um, so with meals or just at the very end of a meal, cinnamon tea makes a great dessert beverage and you can just simmer the sticks for, you know, maybe 20 minutes or so, or you can throw them in a stainless steel, you know, nice, really well insulated thermos and let them steep for an hour or two and then sip that whenever you want. It's really quite tasty. Yes, that's that's a great suggestion. Thank you. So I know that there are a few other herbs that you use for your patients with uh, diabetes or blood sugar control issues. What what are they? So, well, at first I should mention that as an herbalist, I don't have patients. I have clients. Yes, clients. Yes, <laughs> I have to be cognizant of that. Um, so another one that's really neat and useful, and I don't use it a lot in my practice just because I don't have a good source of it. Well, I do, but I just don't get out to harvest it, um, is blueberry leaf because it is one that people could go out and harvest for themselves. And the research on it is pretty neat. So even though I do, it's not one of the, my go-tos in my practice, it is still a good one to know about and play around with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we do make the tea when we have our blood sugar class. And so blueberry leaf, uh, you know, we know blueberry fruits are good for us and you could certainly eat them. And sometimes I do have people just buy frozen blueberries or go out and harvest. With wild lots blueberries. of that cinnamon, right? Yes, you can have that with cinnamon. And in fact, I've had some nice, really like whole grain, low sugar waffles and then thrown cinnamon and blueberries frozen blueberries, heated them up and just put them on top. So no maple syrup at all. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a pretty nice topper or a really great smoothie ingredient too. cinnamon and blueberry just taste really good together. And, um, you just have to be careful. You don't have to eat a ton of sugar at the right. same time. So the traditional use of blueberry leaf is very common, especially throughout Canada, where blueberries grow pretty prolifically. And here in the Northeast, especially New Hampshire and Maine, we have a lot of blueberry leaves because we have acidic, poor soil. And uh, and that's what blueberries really like. And so we would harvest the leaves and then it would be traditionally used for blood sugar control in um, Canadian communities amongst Canadian healers. And they did a, a survey and they found that fenugreek and blueberry leaf were the 
top two herbs used for blood sugar control in Native American communities in um, in northern Canada, especially kind of the northeastern section of northern Canada, which is interesting because fenugreek is not native here, but the blueberry leaves certainly are. Yeah. And there have been some, there have been several lab studies and the lab studies have been pretty cool. Um, so one of the studies that they did, um, it improved glucose transport into the cell. So basically helped that sugar get into the cell where it's needed by 15 to 25%. Um, and then regardless of whether there was insulin present or not, it's seem to work. So it does seem to have an almost insulin-like effect to it. This is another herb that is historically used in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, but it does tend to have a more overt, straightforward blood sugar lowering effect. So you do want to be careful that you don't lower blood sugar too much. Mm -hmm. um, also, some of the studies on the fruits, so the blueberries themselves, um, have also improved uh, beta cell proliferation. So those beta cells are the cells that produce the insulin. And oftentimes in type 1 diabetes, and then especially, and even sometimes in type 2, the beta cells aren't producing insulin effectively. And so it was neat that they increased that proliferation by threefold. So they wow. may have some benefit in kind of regenerating some of those beta cells. And then both um, the leaf and the stem extracts improved the way the body was able to handle blood sugar so that if cells were exposed to too much sugar, they were less apt to die as a result of that. And so that was by like 20 to 33 percent. Wow. That's... To the research. So yeah, it was, it's pretty neat. We don't tend to think of blueberry leaves and they make a pretty decent tasting tea. Oftentimes I'll add some rooibos tea, which gives it a little bit more of a fruity blueberry flavor, even mm -hmm. though it's technically not a fruit or a blueberry, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a good supportive herb. And then I will throw maybe some dehydrated blueberries or bilberries and you can find blueberries in the wild very easily. And if you can't find them in the wild, bilberry is very closely related. So you could use dried bilberry fruit or dried bilberry leaf pretty much the same way. Um, there are some concerns with adulteration with bilberry fruits, but, uh, but they are more common in commerce than the blueberry leaves would be. And there has been at least one human study on type 2 diabetes. And so in this one, they did a blueberry leaf extract um, compared to placebo. I just have the study right here in front of me. And they took 250 milligrams three times a day, um, just a little bit before meals. And that's especially with a pill. It's important to take it, you know, 15 to 30 minutes before meals because it's going to take a little while for it to digest and break down. And you want it breaking down at the same time. That's one of the things I like about teas and tinctures and powders is that they're going in at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you don't like tinker with the timing quite so much. Sure. Um, and so they found that it reduced the fasting glucose by 40 points. Um, and the, the placebo did not do that at all. And that their CRP, which is a C-reactive protein, it's an inflammatory marker, that that also reduced. And some of the liver enzymes also got better as well when they were taking this. So that was kind of a nice human study. I'd love to see more human research. There's a little bit of a concern that blueberry leaves are high in tannins, which could be a little bit irritating to the kidneys. Mm-hmm. And so this is usually something you'd use a little bit here and there, but not necessarily daily for the rest of your life. Um, right. Thank you. This is uh, really an interesting uh, way for us to look at three common uh, remedies or three common ingredients that uh, someone could potentially play with in terms of blood sugar regulation. So my next question for you is, do you have, if someone wanted to uh, dig a little bit deeper in terms of herbal remedies, 
countries or places to buy, whether it is fenugreek or maybe uh, cinnamon, good quality cinnamon or good quality uh, blueberry leaf. What are your favorite resources? So they could be bulk herbs or places to buy these things. Or if you can talk a little bit about additional literature resources that you find useful in your practice or in general in uh, learning herbs. Okay. So we'll start off with where to get the herbs themselves. And so some of them you can get in your backyard and that's always the best place to get them if you have access to them and you will, you have the time and the inclination to go out and harvest them, especially something like blueberry leaf. If you're in an area where there are a lot of blueberry leaves, you can just go out and harvest them. Um, it's early summer. And so the, the leaves are just coming out and you should nibble a few. And if they taste like they have nice blueberry tang flavor to the leaves, those are going to be the best ones for medicine. That's something I learned from Michael Moore. And I usually go for the low bush blueberries. One, because that is what most of the traditional use has been around in most of the research, but also they're easier to identify where some of the high bush blueberries would be easier to mix up with other plants that grow in the same areas. And so to, to help ensure identity, that would be good. And uh, if you're going to buy the blueberry leaves, you could buy blueberry leaf or bilberry leaf. I don't know for sure if they carry it, but mountain rose is my favorite herb for most herbs. And so that is where I get my cinnamon and my fenugreek. And sometimes I get dried bilberry, but I've started just um, getting the wild blueberries locally and dehydrating those. So mm -hmm. I have them for tea. Um, it's much better quality. And like I said, there are some concerns with quality of bilberry and identity of bilberry on the market. Can I ask so, you about dehydrating your blueberries and bilberries? Um, yeah. You dehydrate them rather than freeze them, right? Well, you can do both. Actually, the frozen berries are going to be even better for you. So the best way to get the blueberries into you would be to get the wild, although if they're not wild, they still are beneficial. They're just not quite as potent and uh, and preferably organic or wild. But if they're not, then it's not the end of the world. And then freeze them and then to either let them thaw or throw them in a smoothie frozen or ironically, putting them in a microwave and heat, thawing them out in the microwave has been shown to retain the most wow. antioxidant benefits, um, according to the Eating on the Wild Side book, which is a, a great book by Joe Robinson. Um, but any of those is, you know, however you want to use them would be great. The reason I dehydrate the berries is so I can throw them into tea sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't really seek out dried bilberries or blueberries typically, but if you wanted to put them in tea, that can be really nice. Otherwise, I would just use fresh, but especially frozen, cooked. Um, those are going to be the most potent for blood sugar control. Sure. And uh, so that's that. Uh, but mountain rose is a really great source for herbs. Um, that's one of my favorites and that's my main go-to. Sometimes if they don't have, um, if they're out of stock in something, I might go to Pacific Botanicals or Star West. I'd say Pacific Botanicals would be my number two. And then although they don't contain these herbs particularly, if... Um, if I have a, a local grower that specializes and that, you know, the plants are being harvested that year, that's usually the best quality. So mm -hmm. Zach Woods Herb Farm in Vermont is one that I really like that's close to here. And they have, for example, holy basil, which is another potentially blood sugar balancing herb. And it's the quality on the market, even through really good companies like Mountain Rose, tends to be pretty meh. And so what I don't grow myself, I go to Zach Woods because I know that it's really excellent quality. It costs a lot more, um, but you're paying for um, that good quality. And also because they're growing it in Vermont, the cost of living and the cost of growing things in Vermont is a lot higher than something coming from, say, India, uh, mm -hmm. whereas those bigger suppliers, especially Mountain Rose, is getting them from all over the world. So they can, you know, have 
lower prices when you're buying something grown organically in the United States, especially in, in New England where our growing season is so short and our cost of living is so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're paying you're paying more for that, but you get really nice quality as a result. Absolutely. So those would be some sources for dried herbs, especially. They do sell some um, ready-made products, but mostly I use their dried herbs. And then companies... For blood sugar, it's kind of tricky, but I would say Gaia Herbs and Herb Farm um, and also Oregon Wild Harvest are three of my favorite companies for pre-made products. There are also some other neat ones like from Herbalist and Alchemist, which is David Winston's company. I know he makes a blueberry salad extract, which would be another potential way to take your blueberry that's very tasty. And uh, and then also Wise Woman Herbals makes some really nice solid extracts and tinctures. And so sometimes I'll use those ones if I don't have access to it here and I haven't gotten around to making it myself. So those are all, you know, maybe like, I think that's five different really good tincture companies. And some of them do make capsules as well. I don't use capsules very often. um, But Oregon's Wild Harvest or um, Gaia would be two companies that I would trust for capsules. As Rosemary Gladstar, not Rosemary Gladstar, but Susan Weed likes to say, capsules are the least effective, uh, most expensive way to take herbs. Although... Mm -hmm. If it's an extract, most of the studies are done on capsules. So usually they do a standardized extract in a pill. Of course. Um, So, yeah, so those would be a few places to get things. But your backyard, not all these particular plants grow in your backyard, but for the many that do, your backyard is a great place to get your plants. That's wonderful. Thank you. So as we are coming to an end of this interview, I have a couple of more questions for you. So one of them is, is there something that we have not addressed um, at this point that you would like uh, this audience to know? And then my second question is, you touched upon this a little bit, but I want to ask you again, uh, tell us uh, where someone can learn more about you and from you. I know you have a vibrant social media presence, but I absolutely love your website. So I will definitely include all of these things in the show notes, but I want them to be recorded in the audio of this, uh, of this interview. Okay, great. Well, I will throw in um, just a few little comments that more, not that there are things I didn't say, but things I didn't really expand upon. Mm-hmm. So when I mentioned bitters before, I didn't really say what herbs I considered to be bitters. I mean, I gave some dietary examples like the grapefruit and black coffee, but uh, herbally when I'm making blends for people, some of my favorites would be artichoke leaf, mm-hmm. um, sometimes dandelion root, but artichoke leaf is one that I use the most often. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been some studies on berberine rich plants like barberry as well. But I'd say that artichoke leaf is my main go-to there. And uh, their company Urban Moonshine makes lots of really great herbal bitters formulas. And they do make one that's like a healthy liver bitters that is mainly artichoke leaf and fenugreek seed mm-hmm. together. So that would be one to consider, even though it does have a little bit of honey in it. But that would be one to consider if somebody wanted to go buy something that was already made up. Um, so those are some good bitters. And then holy basil is another really particularly great herb for blood sugar control, especially where stress is a component. We know holy basil or Tulsi as being an adaptogenic herb that's kind of calming and energizing. And it's just so lovely as a tea. It's just this really aromatic plant. And it does, because of its benefit for balancing cortisol, which is a stress hormone, its cortisol is also a blood sugar um, hormone as well. And so if you're having holy basil tea with your meals, you may find that as time goes on, that because you're less stressed and because your blood sugar is in better state of balance, that you're not craving those sugars. So especially where people are having stress-based sugar cravings, holy basil is one of my go-tos. 
And you can combine it with other things. It actually blends really well with green tea as a morning beverage. I was working in the same natural food store and we used to have a ready supply of donuts in the back that Mm. were not Nothing we would have carried, but one of our organic bread delivery companies um, also was the delivery company for Coffee Cup Bakery. So my, our general manager at the time, who had diabetes, uh, had convinced him to leave us all his day-old donuts. And uh-huh. I would normally have one or two donuts a year. Um, and with the, But with them there, my willpower is not very good. I was very stressed. I was very busy. I worked really long hours running their supplement department at the time. And uh, and so I would go out back and be like, oh, I'm really hungry. Oh, a donut. And I was eating one or two donuts a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, my butt was getting bigger and it was, certainly wasn't very good for my stress levels either. And so I started drinking a holy basil green tea in the morning just for general benefit. And I was really pleasantly surprised to discover that I could walk by the donuts. I didn't, you know, my willpower was better and I just didn't really wanted as much. And I would think to myself, maybe I should schedule a lunch break in the next 10 minutes and go and eat real food, which was just really nice, easy, you know, whatever we can do, you know, herbs, I don't think with weight loss and, um, especially with something like weight loss, they're not magic pills, but mm-hmm. they can make it easier to eat well and to exercise, which is really nice. And holy basil is a good one for that. So that's that. Um, but as far as people finding out more about me, of course, you've got my books. Um, the first one is out now and you can get it on my website and you can also get it anywhere books are sold. I love it when people get it through me because that supports my work even more and you'll get a signed copy. But really anywhere you get it is great. You can get it on Amazon and most bookstores will carry it or can order it. And, um, and then the second book, like I said, will be out in February, March, but my website is a really great source for all sorts of information. So that would be my first place I would have people go because it's just a wealth of information. And then from my website, you can sign up for my mailing list and I send out an email every month and I try to put links and seasonal musings. So it's not just advertisement. It actually has some, some good information for you, links to articles. And, uh, and then I am on Instagram and I'm also on Facebook and I'd say those are the two most, um, my biggest presence for social media are those two places. Although I do technically, um, it reposts to Twitter. So if I post something there, it'll show up on Twitter, but I'm really not active on Twitter. But your pictures and your articles are always fabulous. And I have to say that I, uh, what your newsletter is one of those uh, emails that I always open because I always enjoy reading, um, just your thoughts about seasonal uh, ideas that you give. And it just puts a lot of different things into perspective. And so I really appreciate it. So thank thank you. Every now and then somebody stops me in the grocery store to thank me for the newsletter. So I I like that. It lets me know that I'm doing it well, because I really don't want it to be this like big advertisement all the time. I want people to get good, useful information and, you know, just some inspiration out of it. And it only comes out about once a month. So it's not this relentless, you know, every week or multiple times a week um, kind of email. It's just every now and then just to get you in this, the the mindset of the season. Right. And it, it definitely is uh, a lovely reminder of the season and the importance of herbs in your life. So thank you for that. Thank uh, Maria, thank you so much. This was so educational, so informative, so wonderful. It's always great to talk to you. And I really appreciate you taking the time and joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Maria Noel Groves. You can find all the links mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 48. When you have a moment, I greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcasts. 
this is the best way for others to learn about the Wellness Insider Network. This episode is proudly brought to you by Tamim Teas. Tamim Teas is a local company specializing in creation of medicinal mushroom teas. Two of my current favorite blends are Lion Maitake Clarity and Rishi Delight. I use them to enhance cognition and for their effects on immune system. Few episodes ago, I interviewed Liat Racine, the creator of these beautiful teas about the science and art of mushroom blends. You can find the link to the episode in the show notes this, of this episode, wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 48. To get 15% off on your first online purchase, please enter the promo code tamim for health at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash tamim before December 1. You can also get free shipping if you purchase two blends or more. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you. Mm-hmm.